Welcome to another episode of Breakthrough Science with Prime Movers Lab. Join venture capital firm Prime Movers Lab as we dive deep into the most exciting advances in breakthrough science and technology with the founders, researchers, and prime movers who are working to transform billions of lives. I'm Gavin Mathis, the communications and government relations partner at Prime Movers Lab, and we have a, an awesome uh, panel today today of policy experts who can help us kind of walk through President Biden's uh, fiscal year 2024 R&D budget items, as well as the ongoing debates around the uh, debt ceiling negotiations that are going on right now. Some of you might be aware that there's floor debate right now on Speaker McCarthy's uh, uh, debt ceiling bill. So we'll hopefully be able to dive in that uh, conversation a lot with the panelists. Before we get too far along, um, just want to thank all the LPs and founders who are joining us today. And for those of you who may not be as familiar with PML, uh, we are a deep tech venture capital firm that invests in breakthrough science companies that are in the transportation, energy, human augmentation, manufacturing, infrastructure, and agriculture spaces. So before we get too far along, I'd love to do just a quick round of intros, maybe we can start with uh, Preetha, Marissa, then Matt and Mike, real quick. Hi, I'm Preetha Ghosh. I'm a partner at Prime Movers Lab, and uh, I have a background in chemical engineering and defense analysis. Hi, I'm Marissa Serafino. I'm an associate at Holland and Knight in Washington, D.C. I'm an attorney working in the government section. I primarily work on national security and technology-related issues. Uh, most of my days recently have been taken up by the CHIPS Act, and before joining the firm, I worked in the Senate uh, for Senator Shaheen for more than four years. Hi, I'm uh, Matt Horahan. I'm uh, Associate Director for R&D and Advanced Industry at the Federation of American Scientists. Uh, prior to FAS, I've been with FAS for about a year. Uh, and previously, I was with uh, AAAS for, uh, for many years uh, as their lead federal science budget analyst. Hi, everyone. My name is Mike O'Neill. I'm a lawyer with a law firm, KNL Gates. Um, my practice is primarily in the energy sector. Um, I've Over the last uh, 10 years or so, I've worked on pretty much everything from hydrocarbons to hydropower to renewables to you name it. Um, but the last several years, my practice is really focused primarily on the emerging fusion energy sector, just a level set that's fusion where you bring the nuclei of atoms together and release energy as opposed to fission, which is you know what we use in conventional nuclear power plants around the world today, that splits uh, heavier atoms apart. So I'm, I'm more on the uh, fusion side of the equation and looking forward to the conversation. <clears throat> Thank you guys so much. Um, to kick things off, I feel like we probably should just start with uh, debt ceiling bill that's being negotiated now. Um, you know, when we wanted to host this webinar a couple months ago, we just were going to dive into Biden's budget. And we didn't think like today of all days was going to be the day that's actually on the House floor and right in the middle of everything. Um, so we just kind of want to dive in there because we just kind of want to get people up to speed about what exactly this entails, what the impact it could have on R&D funding, or, or if there's even chances of large portions of this bill actually getting through um, the Senate and if Biden would ever sign it. So I think, Matt, I mean, you did an excellent piece of analysis that kind of outlines the what this would entail for federal R&D over the next decade or so. And you might be a good person to start with just kind of what that looks like and kind of give people a, a 
high picture of kind of what's uh, what's in store here. Yeah, so I guess maybe from a from a science spending perspective, maybe it's I'll just start with what the proposal actually does and how it relates most directly for uh, for R and D investments. Um, part of the bill, key part of the bill, is a set of spending caps um, that would start in in the upcoming fiscal year, twenty twenty four. Uh, and in 2024, it would roll back what's known as discretionary spending back to uh, 2022 levels. It's a pretty, pretty sizable cut uh, for spending. Uh, and then cap spending, it, you know, almost flat for, for the rest of the decade. And it affects what's known as the discretionary budget. So this is the part of the budget uh, that's allocated, <clears throat> excuse me, allocated every year uh, annually through the appropriations process. And it's where just about all federal science spending lives, right? There's some spending that's allocated through other means. You know, a lot of the semiconductor spending was uh, was mandatory spending or direct spending. Um, but most research and most of the big chips and science priorities are allocated through the discretionary budget. Now, by capping discretionary spending over a decade, it ultimately rolls back, you know, it has the effect of rolling back spending below what the Congressional Budget Office calculates as their, their long-term baseline. Um, so the upshot for R&D, what we calculate, is that over the next decade, we'd be looking at about half a trillion dollars less uh, available for R&D below baseline. That's about a, you know, almost a 20% reduction in what we might expect under the, the kind of normal, you know, CBO baseline. Um, that said, that's that's total R&D. But the other twist here is that not only, you know, while the, the bill itself only caps discretionary spending over the decade, uh, House Republicans have already said that, um, you know, they want to protect and likely increase defense spending. So if those spending limitations only fall on the non-defense or civilian side of the ledger, uh, and, you know, and non-defense spending is expected to make up the entirety of the spending limitations, I'm going to be looking at, at you know, something like 40% reductions over the decade uh, for agencies like the National Science Foundation, uh, NASA, NIH, NIST. Um, again, a lot of those agencies that were called out in ships and science. So it would be very difficult, um, you know, for, for Congress. There's been a lot of talk of increasing federal science investment. The caps that, that are in play right now, if they were to become law, um, would make it very, very difficult for the federal government to, to, to meet that rhetoric with actual investment over, over the coming years. That's incredibly helpful. Mike, Marissa, anything kind of in areas of you that you guys are particularly following? And then obviously I kind of want to just open up the conversation, but how do you actually see the, the debate playing out over the next few months before we hit the, the ceiling, really? Um, obviously, this is kind of a, a first offer from the Republicans. Biden said he just wants a clean debt ceiling limit. So I'm kind of curious of like the dynamics that you see playing out over the, the next few months. I'll take I'll take the first shot there. Uh, you know, I think that the Democrats seem united on this front. So that will play into, you know, how, how the back and forth goes here. But I think it's also somewhat difficult for Republicans, many of whom voted for Chips and Science Act and have, you know, they understand the national security implications of rolling back this funding um, or just diminishing it over time. 
uh, to those national security objectives that sort of everyone agrees are important. And so the actual impact of what happens uh, when you you actually implement such a bill will become real and that will hopefully you know steer folks in in the direction of coming to some sort of compromise which they need to actually do. So some type of debt ceiling deal will happen, um, but it just depends on where things shake out. Yeah, and just to kind of use my fusion experience as a vignette, you know, I'm sure that I'm preaching to the choir when I just note that, you know, R&D today is job creation tomorrow, and the investments that we don't make today are investments that uh, our geopolitical competitors are making and will make, um, and we see it particularly in the fusion space. Uh, China uh, is a major investor in this sector. Um, the EU and the UK are similarly uh, global competitors, global competitors with the US. And I can tell you that, you know, conversations with policymakers uh, really uh, get exciting when you describe the um, uh, the investments that some of our competitors are making. So, uh, you know, ignoring the uh, kind of news cycle politics of it all, um, I think it will just, uh, it, it will really be helpful for uh, players to uh, emphasize the geopolitical implications of um, uh, failing to make these investments over, over time. Do you see any particular parts of like the IRA or chips, like not obviously not the semiconductor incentives that were appropriate already, but all the rest of the R&D funding that was included in chips that may get um, on the chopping block that's most likely to be kind of um, negotiated or do you think it does end up being more of a, a clear um, extension into sometime next year, which is an election year? I mean, do you, is there anything particular that you think might be negotiated in talks between McCarthy and Biden? Uh, well, you know, I'm not much of a political prognosticator, um, but I'll just kind of note that uh, the closer we get to an election, the more fraught the politics will become. So, you know, there's a lot more room for wheeling and dealing now, probably, rather than, uh, you know, if we extend to March of 24, which seems to be what the, the, the trend is in, in the, um, the House bill. And I'll, I'll add to just the whatever, you know, wheeling and dealing may happen between the political principles here, um, you know, their space to maneuver gets much more narrow, um, you know, the harder, uh, you know, the harder line we see on spending. I mean, if spending's got to come down a little bit or stays flat or whatever happens, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's a certain political equilibrium in lots of elements of the science budget, I think. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, there's lots of players involved that are going to want to see their, their key accounts and their key, you know, their, their, their favorite programs, not lose any ground. And so, so, to, so on the topic of chips and science priorities, there's certainly areas where I think they can probably agree, but, but, you know, if, if the spending isn't there, the big picture spending isn't there, um, to enable the additional investments, um, you know, it's it's going to limit what's what's really possible in terms of uh, in terms of negotiations.
I wouldn't say that anything is necessarily on the chopping block at this point. Obviously, there's a lot of carryover from just in science of programs that weren't appropriated and are still waiting for appropriations. And we'll see some of those in the FY2024 process um, and then in potentially other builds as well. Um, but the I'd say the dynamics are already different than the Chips and Science Act time because the House, you know, as we know very well, is run by Republicans. And so like my colleagues were mentioning, that just changes the political dynamics from the outset. Um, and so it just depends on who in the appropriations process can get their priorities across the table. I think anything related to semiconductors and the CHIPS program office implementation of those semiconductor incentives, um, that's probably going to take the uh, take the day. Uh, a lot of program uh, requirements really bring into into the conversation um, other programs that were included in the Chips and Science Act, like the Manufacturing USA Institutes and and other programs um, on STEM education, et cetera. And applicants are encouraged, if not required, to engage in those programs. And so there's more incentive there to have the appropriations you know, secured so that that engagement can occur and, and we see that growth. So I think it will just depend on for the docking um, this year in the appropriations process. Great. Preetha, did you want to, I think you had a question about kind of uh, committee activity or like just if there's anything that's come out of that. Um, yeah, so uh, this is actually directed at Marissa specifically to think about the, the to follow on what you were just talking about with regards to the CHIPS Act. Um, so in the recent weeks, a, you know, a bunch of agency heads have testified be before congressional committees about the budgets. Um, so what stood out to you about you know, Commerce, DOE, NSF, their budget request with respect to the CHIPS Act? Yeah, sure. I think it's, in addition to the actual appropriations, the appropriations process is such a great opportunity for members to conduct oversight. And so that's where we also see this, you know, come into play um, when it gets to the CHIPS and Science Act and the programs therein. But in terms of the actual hearings themselves, you know, there was a lot of uh, discussion about the implementation of the CHIPS program office and how that is going and then how the ancillary programs to that, you know, feed in. And like my colleagues were saying, everyone has their pet project. So whether it was, you know, the, the tech hubs um, that were discussed, whether it was the, you know, Manufacturing USA Institutes, um, everyone sort of is is touching base on those, seeing how the implementation there is going, and then what additional funding is needed for this year. Um, one of the things that you know stood out to me was that uh, there was really broad bipartisan support still for chips. And one of the members said, you know, "Thank you for spending seven hours in a skiff with me so that I could get to a yes on that bill." And you know that sort of was really impactful for me because if that's what we need to do to get people to a place where they can support these R&D initiatives, um, it's, you know, it is a pathway. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the, I think, many, you know, um, options that 
agencies have in this type of political environment. And that's a good transition, just because I'm kind of curious of the the dynamics on the committees now, is we have so many new chairmen, so many new members in the House, uh, leadership switched over. So you've got like Frank Lucas taking over the House Science Committee, Chuck Fleischman on House Probes, uh, Energy and Water Subcommittee. Um, Mike, I think you probably have like a take on why Fleischman's role is kind of interesting where he, because he's from the District of Oak Ridge National Lab. And we'd love to just kind of get everyone's take about have any members who kind of stood out in this process who are new uh, chairman, new ranking members, and who've kind of like really stepped into lead new initiatives. Like I know Frank Lucas cares a lot about uh, NOAA and kind of weather because of his agriculture backgrounds or anything else that's kind of like stood out to you guys. Well, I'm happy to start off. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, Congressman Fleischman is certainly a really interesting uh, case here. Um, as you mentioned, he's uh, the congressional rep for Oak Ridge. Um, that is a very large uh, fusion account. It's where the uh, international, uh, or I should say the US contribution to the international fusion experiment in the south of France flows through Oak Ridge. Um, and uh, you know, Chuck Fleischman has been, uh, was the Republican co-founder of the Fusion Energy Caucus um, several years ago with, with Don Beyer on the Democratic side. And uh, one thing that I think is pretty interesting is that uh, Chuck Fleischman has taken a role not only as the chair of the uh, Approved Subcommittee on Energy and Water, but also a seat on the House Science Committee. Um, which is a pretty rare thing for an appropriator to take a seat on the on authorizer on authorizing committee. Um, it happens, but um, particularly a chairman of a subcommittee here taking this role, he's going to see himself coming and going as he authorizes uh, programs across the you know the science accounts, uh, and then goes and, and writes the check across the hall. Uh, so. It, you know, I think it, I think it's emblematic of his enthusiasm for these programs uh, that he's really taking a uh, very uh, assertive uh, role here. Uh, you know, we just hosted our, our firm hosted the uh, Fusion Industry Association's uh, annual policy conference about three and a half weeks ago down in D.C. And, uh, you know, Representative Fleischman was very uh, uh, effusive in his praise for the uh, the fusion program, and so you know it's not surprising that he's uh, jumping in with both feet. So uh, we're exciting to we're excited to see where he uh, takes this program on the house side. Yeah, Matt Morris, anyone else kind of stand out to you? Yeah, I mean maybe I'll mention um, Hal Rogers of Kentucky. Uh, is the new chair of the Commerce Justice Science Subcommittee, which funds uh, NSF, um, NIST, uh, among the, the Chips and Science Agencies, as well as NASA. Um, and he's an interesting one. It's not. It's actually not you know, clear what he's going to do yet um, on his bill and what, what his priorities are going to be exactly, you know, agency by agency. Um, he's an interesting one. He's been around uh, for a long time. Um, you know, uh, he previous chair of the, the appropriations committee. Um, and, you know, he's somebody who, um, you know, will likely prioritize things like EPSCOR. Um, uh, it's the program to broaden geographic 
distribution of uh, NSF funding, um, uh, you know, beyond the, the, those few states that, that receive the most uh, in, in, in grant awards. Uh, Kentucky is a state that benefits from it, and I would expect Rogers to to want to prioritize that kind of program that that um, you know more broadly distributes uh, agency funding to his to his home state. That may or may not mean that he ends up um, you know building in a lot of support for some of the new initiatives like uh, like the NSF Tech Directorate, for example. You know, it's an open question. We'll see we'll see what happens uh, and and how he funds it. But I think. You know, during hearings, and and this is actually more general comment about a lot of the new folks. Um, you know, you often hear um, a lot of positive rhetoric about tech investment, about the role of federal R and D and basic science, especially uh, the importance of, of global competition. Um, but you also often hear in you know in you know virtually the same breath about the need to control spending. Um, you know, you see legislators kind of looking hard for reasons to fund or not fund, um, you know, different programs to go back to, to Marissa's point earlier. Um, so, I mean, in some ways there's, you know, it's almost like a Jekyll and Hyde, uh, you know, uh, uh, personality to, to Congress when we're in times like this where spending appears to, you know, about to be tight. There's a lot of priorities that a lot of folks actually do care about quite a bit, but they also are grappling with the fact that there's just not going to be enough not going to be much, you know, too many dollars uh, available. And so, and so they have to make really tough choices. And, you know, somebody like Rogers is in a position to have, um, you know, some pretty outsized influence on um, some of these chips uh, and say, you know, the, the and science part of the chips and science act. And, and, um, you know, we'll see how we, what, what kinds of choices he makes. I totally agree, Matt. I think the, taking this in a bit of a different direction. Um, I think it will also, with the new faces, increase the importance of the Senate counterparts. So who have the you know foundational experience, have been doing it for a while, Senator Shaheen, Senator Moran. And um, you know, those are going to be, especially their staff, when four corners meet and they are going over priorities, you know, that makes a big difference if you've been doing this for a long time and you, know, you have your priorities down and and kind of understand the, the state of play. Um, so mixing it up a little bit is good, I think, in that sense. New priorities will come to the top and um, you know gain a bit more attention. But there is something you said for um, you know those more veteran members on on the committees. That's a good point. I um, I wanted to move. Uh, to Mike's um, specialty, because uh, despite everything we were just talking about with regards to how tight the budget is looking, um, fusion energy is not, <laughs> not, not an area, is, or is an area where we are seeing alignment. Um, so I'd love to hear, you know, why uh, House Republicans seem to be so supportive of, of fusion energy. Sure, and just to preface, you know, when everyone else's budgets are flattered going down and you're the one bright spot, that is not an ideal place to be uh, politically. Um, that puts something of a target on your on your account. Um, and so, as you say, it's, it's welcome to have uh, a broadening base of support across the Republican caucus, um, particularly in the House, uh, I would say. Uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about Chuck Fleischman uh, and, and his um, enthusiasm for this 
for this endeavor. Um, there are a couple of other folks that I would uh, put in the same breath. Uh, J.L. Bernalti uh, out of California is very uh, excited about fusion. Um, he has joined the Fusion Energy Caucus. He's, you know, rallied support around the uh, NRC process for fusion. Uh, Mike Garcia also, uh, I, uh, I think he's out of California too. Um, he has, uh, he, he brought up fusion in this hearing with Senator or with Secretary Granholm uh, and, and emphasize it's important. Like uh, Chuck Fleischman, he also serves on the House Science Committee, so he's similarly positioned to, uh, um, you know, write, uh, I guess, pay for the checks that he writes in the uh, authorizing side. And then the other uh, kind of maybe bigger batch of uh, support could come out of the uh, Conservative Climate Caucus that we've seen um, some interest there. Uh, although I wouldn't want to get too far out ahead of myself um, before those members really render their own uh, opinion on the on the program, um, but you're you're right that the the Biden administration has put uh, fusion on its uh, on its agenda. Uh, last year, the uh, the Biden White House hosted a, uh, a a symposium essentially to or maybe a summit is better said to announce a uh, bold decadal vision to commercialize fusion energy, um, which is very highfalutin rhetoric and really didn't make much difference until the uh, full weight of the government went behind the program um, that had started with uh, the issuance of the uh, milestone-based cost share program that DOE uh, put out last year. Um, Maybe we'll see some announcements on that soon, uh, but it's really bolstered by uh, the uh, president's budget request that pumps up the fusion budget to north of a billion dollars, um, and that's you know across both you know public-private partnerships, like partnerships with the national labs to support fusion development. It's also to support uh, national test stands that uh, can you know. Uh, accelerate the commercialization uh, across the whole industry, not just for you know single companies. Um, there's no doubt that the uh, investments across the um, across the industry by public investors, such as you know prime movers, but, um, but other uh, you know major po uh, public uh, and private, I should say, major private investments have uh, engendered some public support. Uh, and I'd also note the uh, very substantial tech demonstration out of Lawrence Livermore, Livermore National Lab at the end of last year, the National Ignition Facility finally reached ignition uh, demonstrating uh, net energy from fusion reactions in a controlled setting. Uh, Mind-bogglingly mind uh, important form from a uh, technology de development perspective, and yet extremely predictable based on the trajectories across the uh, the community over the last few years. And lastly, you know, as something that can really uh, boost additional political support is uh, you know the trajectory around safety. Uh, just about uh, ten days ago, the uh, U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission rendered a, a decision that formally removes 
commercial fusion from the uh, fission regulatory concept or construct, uh, essentially deciding to regulate uh, fusion machines and their materials within them uh, in uh, akin to a uh, particle accelerator or some sort of industrial uh, user machine as not a you know fission power plant. Um, you know, this is a uh, a regulatory decision that has real implications because it is a game changer. It it uh, lowers the obstacle for permitting from about a billion dollars for a fission power plant to something you know a tenth of that or less, uh, hopefully well less than that. Um, it should speed up the process by a number, you know, a decade. <laughs> Uh, or so. So it's a it's a very exciting um, development for the industry. And it, frankly, politically, it grants a imprimatur from the safety regulator to uh, political supporters saying that, yes, we agree with industry that this is a safe technology uh, and the risk can be fully uh, mitigated by, you know, controls that are well established across multiple other industries. Uh, so that uh, paired with you know the geopolitical and other aspects that we've already touched on, uh, can uh, start to really bulk out the support for uh, the fusion uh, sector in in Congress. A few points I just wanted to reiterate there. I think you made a couple interesting uh, things I wanted to highlight because in terms of like we look at a few things: the science risk, business risk. The Livermore uh, success really put a lot of the science risk behind us. I think we're like, we're, as an investor, we're very, you know, we've always been very gung ho on fusion, but that makes us feel even better about it seeing something like that. And then to your point about the, uh, the fusion summit, our uh, former colleague, Carly Anderson, moderated one of the panels at the summit. And so, you know, we've been thrilled to see all the progress since the summit, just in terms of uh, retiring a lot of the regulatory risk. So, um, yeah. We're thrilled to hear about all the progress since, especially the NRC uh, news as of what, as you said, a week and a half ago. Yeah, it's a it's a fresh decision. It um, starts to really set uh, a, a firm trajectory internationally. It's a very similar approach the UK has taken. Um, the IAEA is starting uh, up conversations about this as well. So, you know, we're starting to see some real um, uh kind of snowball effects of really rolling this uh, big regulatory snowball downhill. And just to, just to uh, emphasize Mike's point, as somebody who's followed Office of Science you know, investments for a while, it wasn't that long ago that most of the attention in that program, um, or you know, a lot of the attention was on um, the international activities, right? It's they've they've always sustained these investments in domestic fusion research um, capability, but they've all, always also had a big and growing um, uh, uh, funding wedge that goes towards the ITER uh, International Fusion Energy Project. Um, and in and, and the budget, Mike mentioned, I mean, it's uh, ITER ended up flat or maybe cut slightly. And all of this big increase was on the domestic side for public private partnerships. Um, so I was, you know, I was definitely struck to Mike's point, was definitely struck by what seems to be a, um, a new day and a new age in the, in the program. Um, it was a very different kind of, very different kind of budget than we're used to seeing, I think. 
I'm so glad we went down uh, this. Not It's not truly a digression, I think, even though it sounds like, oh, the NRC, that's not the budget. But I, I think these things are all related. Um, and I also, you know, I saw that headline. I was, an ex I was excited. So thank you for explaining that a bit more. Um, I'd love to hear from everybody. What are other areas where you see alignment between the administration and House Republicans in terms of science? I'll, I'll take the first stab there. Um, one of the things that I think, again, this is going to be somewhat from my putting on my chips hat, um, is this concept of lab to fab, which Secretary Raimundo uses all the time um, to sort of explain chips and how they're thinking about it. I think that's uh, very applicable to many of the R&D and science priorities um, of the administration. And the idea there is that you really need to start the investments in the lab um, in order to get to commercialization and products and making sure that that is all done domestically, right? So that's the national security piece. So I think anything with the national security backdrop that is in that sort of vein and um, trying to achieve those types of objectives, if it's coined in that way, I think there is definitely going to be alignment there. Senator Schumer, I think, gets understands that and also sees the need. I, I think the rumor is that he's going to try to do a China 2.0 competitiveness bill. And uh, that is one of the two priorities for the rest of the year outside of mandatory extensions that have to be done. And so that could be an area where there is some um, agreement. I don't know that anything will actually be passed, like, you know, coming closer to the election, that, that becomes more complicated. But uh, there could be some leftovers from the iterations of the Chips and Science Act, when you seek uh, endless frontiers, that there is still some um, appetite to see through to appropriations or additional um, efforts as well. Uh, I totally agree with with Marissa. I think another kind of twist I'd add, in addition to the to the the, the national security um, connections, there's also I mean there's just a has always been kind of a long term, maybe the maybe the single biggest long term point of dispute politically over you know R and D investments is over you know earlier early stage basic science. Uh, funding, which everybody tends to agree on a lot more versus more downstream tech research investments. Um, so often when we are in years like the current one where spending is is going to be tightened, um, you end up seeing the tech programs and the, the more kind of downstream applied or engineering oriented programs tend to be more vulnerable. So I think, it, you know, we may be in a situation where those programs that are able to combine that national security focus uh, the competitiveness focus with a more basic science orientation or an earlier stage orientation may work out well um, and may work out well for them. You know, for another example would be um, the microelectronics research centers. Uh, these are authorized in chips and science. Um, they were included in the Office of Science budget. Uh, I forget uh, forget how much they requested, but um, and these are, you know, very much uh, associated with uh, U.S., you know, semiconductor performance and, and, and some of the same themes that we saw in chips and science. Um, but they're also, you know, 
can be cast as basic science or pretty early stage research at the national labs, which again, as we've covered, is are favored by uh, uh, Representative Fleischman. So, um, so those kinds of programs, I think, could end up uh, uh, playing well. Mike, anything else, or? Well, maybe I can um, take off my fusion hat for a moment and just note a couple other, you know, I, I think writ large, nuclear has a ton of support um, that played out in the questioning for Secretary Granholm just a couple weeks ago uh, at, at uh, the House Appropriations Committee. Um, that's fission, fusion, um, everything in between. Uh, and, you know, that plays into some of the national security implications that we're talking about, uh, the energy security uh, that, that is, you know, fundamental to a national security strategy. The other area, and this is uh, maybe not quite so scientific, is uh, permitting reform. You know, permitting for infrastructure. It's great to have all these brand new uh, uh, energy generation uh, technologies, everything from hydrogen to uh, new new types of nuclear fission fusion. Um, but what are you going to do if you can't connect it to the grid? Um, and so, uh, you know, we've got a, a, a preface of it last year in the uh, Joe Manchin uh, permitting extravaganza. We're probably going to see some version of it again, uh, you know, as part of the, the debt negotiation or somewhere else. Uh, it will it will be a part of the conversation. And uh, frankly, I think it would be welcome to uh, to a lot of the industry, uh, the, the energy industry um, generally. And that's definitely one thing that was in McCarthy's bill that caught our attention that was in HR1. And we were, you know, obviously... Uh, curious about it. I mean, our former fellow, Eliza uh, Reed, she, we just did a research paper on kind of um, transmission lines and what a bottleneck that is. And so, I mean, it's definitely something we've been able to kind of, we're curious about and love to, you know, see some progress in that uh, area as well. Uh, before I go on to the next question, I just want to remind uh, listeners, please submit uh, questions uh, in the Q&A function here or in chat. Uh, or uh, tweet us on, uh, or just send us a tweet on, at Prime Movers Lab. Uh, my next question here is just kind of, Matt, you made the point earlier, you did a good job of outlining that a lot of these in McCarthy's bill, it goes after a lot more discretionary spending uh, rather than defense spending. So I'm kind of curious if you see a lot more kind of R&D activity move to DOD as a result. I mean, I know the kind of the applied basic research, look, it looked like they got a, a buzz in Biden's budget, but I assume that was probably politics. They, those numbers were going to go back up during negotiations. People wanted that. It was just DOD wanting to, you know, ask for that money somewhere else. And there was some, they knew that was going to, they were going to get a chunk of change out of for R&D there. So I'm kind of curious. I mean, this is just kind of spitballing, but I'm curious if you think more R&D activity ends up going to DOD because it's going to be protected more, or if we get some sort of, um, deal or just caps or just in general with a Republican majority in the House and who knows how the election plays out in 2024. Yeah, I think I think at least in the near term, um, you know, in the next couple of years, I would expect DOD to do a bit better um, uh, on the R&D front. Um, you, I, to your point uh, about, you know, the, the defense basic science, I mean, it's often like we've had 
several years now where de defense basic science in the request gets cut, Pentagon prioritizes other things, and then yes, Congress pluses it back up. And I would expect a similar kind of uh, dynamic in play uh, this year. Um, you know, Congress likes, you know, often likes university uh, support for university programs. They like the, the military, uh, they like funding the military um, uh, research offices. Um, and yeah, with the dynamic in the House and, you know, non-defense spending, even if, you know, I mean, odds are probably against non-defense spending being cut by quite as much as what's being proposed in, in, um, in, uh, uh, in McCarthy's bill. But even if it is, you know, that doesn't happen, we're still likely going to see some constraint as we have in the last couple of years under Democratic Congresses in the non-defense budget. I mean, that's the other thing maybe worth pointing out is that we've actually had a couple of years in a row where defense spending has outpaced non-defense in the final summation, in the final omnibus. So no reason to expect, you know, that gap to change. And in fact, it will likely widen, I would expect, again, you know, at least for the next couple of years, and then we'll see what happens beyond. Um, we actually have a question from uh, Maximilian Winter, one of our LPs here. Um, what about healthcare, life science, and space telecom infrastructure technologies? Are those a priority and how much funding is going towards them? I know like, we kind of have a fusion semiconductor heavy group here, but anything, any insights into the kind of the life sciences and how, uh, what Department of Health and Human Services would be getting, uh, ARPA-H, uh, you know, the cancer moonshot, anything kind of there that stood out to you guys? Yeah, I mean, obviously there are, you know, big priorities. I mean, Congress has really favored um, a lot of life sciences research in the last last few years. Um, President's budget was quite modest when it came to NIH. Um, the dynamic there is an interesting one because uh, the labor age spending bill, which funds NIH and, and ARPA-H and these others, I mean, that's going to be a tough bill. There's going to be a lot that's um, you know, a lot that Republicans may want to strip out of it. It's probably not going to, you know, the, 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 the growth or the reduction in that, the reduction may be greater in that bill. Um, so, you know, I think it could be a particularly tight year for programs funded through it. You know, we'll see if NIH is, is, is protected and, 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 you know, it, you know, I mean, cancer research is one of those bipartisan areas that, that, um, you know, in years past, there hasn't been any issue in getting NIH, you know, $2 billion, $3 billion plus up. Um, so, but that could be an area where, you know, the kind of the, the, the micro uh, level political preferences run into the macro level buzzsaw fiscal politics. Anything else, Mike, Marissa? I would be speaking out of turn. <laughs> <laughs> sure, no worries. <laughs> Yeah, this I mean, is well, yeah. far, far outside my area. <laughs> um, with like, um, I'm trying to think of like, uh, what advice would you give startups that are kind of in this, uh, or looking at the budget, looking at the debate right now, who might be worried about who, who benefited from working chips uh, or the IRA, they maybe they got a good tax provision in the IRA, or they're looking at some grants part of chips. Uh, any advice for those founders, kind of how to make their voice heard the most on Capitol Hill? I mean, we have two lobbyists here, so really love your take of kind of just counsel for founders who might be on this call and are looking to uh, kind of make their, their their voice heard on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I mean, the first and foremost uh, piece of advice I would say is make sure that you are very buttoned up 
on the application side. You know, if you understand your narrative and you can, uh, you have sort of checked all of the boxes under the NOFO, that is probably going to be, that's foundational and that's going to be the most important thing when you go into um, Capitol Hill offices, whether you, and you go into the agency and you talk to partners and you talk to, you know, others that you may be partnering with in what you know, is called a, um, you know, consortium or a, a cluster um, under the, the first NOFO um, for CHIPS. Like those are the really important things. This idea that you have a coalition of support is critical, right? So when you're going to your members of Congress and trying to get their support, the first thing to you know go into any meeting with is understanding what you're asking for and where you sit in that ecosystem and how you're going to comply with a very burdensome process. You know, commercial viability is one of those six prongs of the criteria of the NOFO. And, and so that is that is going to be audited and looked at very closely. The due diligence process will be very intense. So making sure that you have that ironed out before, before going to the Hill is important. And yeah, for, from my perspective on the energy side and, and to note, I'm not a lobbyist, I'm just more of a energy lawyer who um, follows it closely. Um, you know, from my little fusion silo, I think engagement with the national labs is critical. They are the crown jewel of, uh, certainly the energy R and D ecosystem, uh, as, as Marissa, uh, referenced, um, they want to make, you know, every member of Congress wants to make sure that their national lab is well-resourced and, uh, uh, protected from, from cuts. So if you work with one, uh, if not, what are you doing? They're great. But if you work with one, make sure your rep knows uh, that's part of your story. Um, you know, similarly in other sectors, I'm sure work with NASA, other agencies, you know, NIST, as, as Matt mentioned earlier, uh, even universities. These are force multipliers for your message, um, even though they're not, many of these entities cannot, you know, directly lobby Congress. Uh, they can tell this, their story uh, and, and, you know, you are not, not only do they, you know, create a, uh, a, a, a constituency hook for you that, you know, broader than just your physical footprint, but also work with these entities is very validating, particularly for early stage uh, companies. So highly recommend um, working with the national labs. And, you know, a separate but similarly important point is make sure you have your job story. Uh, obviously, we're very early uh, for a lot, a lot of these, uh, a lot of your you know, portfolio companies are early stage. Some are not. Some are creating numerous jobs across an entire supply chain. Know your story. Every politician speaks jobs. That's the language they understand. Uh, that is a short-term boom in in uh, in your in your politicking. So uh, know your story, know it across the supply chain, know where it's coming from domestically, internationally. It's all going to be part of your your story, and and learn it and publicize it. That's great. Um, another quick question from the audience: uh, Do you believe the final resolution to be 
uh, budget reductions to achieve debt ceiling limit increase will be uh, cherry picked, or do you think it's going to be percentage declines across agencies or percentage de decreases across non-defense discretionary areas? So interesting question. Like, is it going? Do you think we're going to have debate around? Yeah, going and finding you know where were those little pockets of money would be, or are we just going to see hard caps, which the McCarthy bill kind of introduces that idea? Um, or do you think in the negotiation process we're going to see some real winners and losers in it? I mean, if uh, if history is any guide, you know the final deal will look something like just basically one or two big numbers on overall discretionary spending areas. Then it'll be up to the you know, the various committees we talked about, you know, Rogers and Fleischman and their counterparts uh, in the Senate to actually write the spending bills and make the, you know, the, the specific choices agency by agency, program by program. Yeah, it, it agreed. I would I would note that um, there has been some horse trading already just to uh, cherry pick certain programs. Uh, the the one that got a lot of attention over the last 24 hours has been in the biofuels space. Yeah, all, yeah. um, so there's already some uh, at least protectionism, whether or not we're, we would call those winners or losers. There's certainly some uh, local constituencies that are um, surviving the first round of cuts here. Um, maybe the last question here as we wrap up. Uh, we're heading into an election year very soon, election process, people are announcing. Um, what, what kind of what role do you think Biden's success is? I mean, he's got to point to IRA and CHIPS as two main reasons of, for his re-election, two, two very big achievements. Um, how do you see R&D kind of being impacted in the uh, you know presidential race or just in all the House and Senate races next year? I mean, do you think... I'm just generally curious of what, how you see the political dynamics of a presidential year playing out um, with some of the areas that we care about. I think the spending will um, be the amount of spending, right, and the the um, sort of runaway spending that Republicans will sort of talk about on the campaign trail. Um, is something that the Democrats will have to grapple with. Uh, but the way that I think the Biden administration has tried to present those uh, funding opportunities is that this is a national security issue. I know I've talked about this many times, um, but that it is required and we have to make these types of investments. So it, I think it comes down, as it always does, to sort of messaging and how that uh, is accepted or not accepted by the electorate. But you'll certainly see talking points on both sides of the aisle that we've seen in the past. But you had such a bipartisan effort on the CHIPS Act um, that I do think that there's going to be sort of less criticism around the you know, $52 billion invested there. Um, and it will be, you know, part of the way that uh, Democrats explain their, you know, their agenda in the next four years. And then Republicans, I think, have the same concerns about national security, especially related to China. I think that's one area that that's, you know, we, we hear that through and through. You know, we have a select committee on China in the House now, you know, run by um, Rob Gallagher. And 
that will be again part of the you know area that we'll see agreement over the you know the next year or so before the election um and it'll be interesting to see how that translates to the campaign trail yeah i would just you know to to piggyback on that one a little bit all politics are local and the the way that um, chips and IRA and the bipartisan infrastructure law have, have been implemented have kind of put a lot of investment into purple and red states. Um, that's really going to blunt a lot of criticism um, that uh, Republicans may have wanted to direct towards these uh, you know democratic achievements. Um, and I think it's you know instructive that. One of the last holdouts on the McCarthy deal was a South Carolina Republican who wanted to make sure that investments in solar and wind, uh, particularly solar in her state, were protected uh, from cuts to um, the tax credits from in last year's uh, spending bills. So, it's um, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think that there's um, th there's certainly going to be a lot of uh, campaign fodder here. But then you're going to have to deal with uh, the fact that, as Marissa mentioned, a lot of these Republicans voted in favor of um, several of these bills, and uh, they're now putting their constituents to work. Uh, and that is a very difficult thing to explain when uh, it comes time to go to the polls. Matt, anything else to add there before we wrap up? Uh, I think, my, I think my, my friends and colleagues did a great job answering that question. <laughs> Well, fantastic. Uh, if we don't have anything else from the audience, we will uh, end it there. Thank you again for uh, joining us. And again, awesome panel. Thank you guys for making the time uh, to participate. And thank you for uh, to those who are attending. Uh, if you want to really hear any part of this conversation, if you missed part of it, it will be back up on our YouTube channel tomorrow. And we have a new podcast, Breakthrough Science with Prime Rivers Lab. You can find it on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, we will have a an edit, uh, recording of this uh, up tomorrow as well. So please feel free to uh, listen to it there and subscribe. We're trying to get the word out on that. So thank you all so much. Uh, have a great day and thank you again. Thank you. Everyone. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.